Shabbat Shalom, everybody. We are in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 11, where God has likened the children of Israel to a old used loincloth that's been getting dirtier and dirtier over time and never washed. And God's purpose, he says, was verse 11, for as the sash clings to the waist of a man, that is when cloth gets damp from sweat and stuff, it tends to cling to the body. And we go, ooh, yuck. But that's what God wanted was for the people to cling to him like a wet piece of cloth clings to the body. It says, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may become my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. That is, that is what God wanted. That was his plan. But what's the next word? But. But they would not hear. That means they made a choice not to hear. What did every prophet of God preach? Repentance. What did the people not want to hear? That one. Repent. What they wanted to hear was God loves everybody. And God is going to bless you beyond measure, whatever you do. Is that ever been the message of the prophets of God? It has not been. Did God promise mercy to everyone? Then to whom did he promise mercy? Keep a finger here and turn back to Exodus chapter 20. And we see it over and over again throughout the scripture. So it's not just in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 verse 6 says, But showing mercy to thousands, that is thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Those who love me. Have you noticed how interchangeable the word love and faith is when you're talking about God? So if you go up to Revelation 14, 12, the saints are characterized by what? The faith of Yeshua, and they keep God's commandments. No different in Revelation than it is in Exodus. So if you love God and keep his commandments, he is so full of mercy. And that word mercy means loving kindness. That's how he is to his children, those who love him, those who serve him. He is such a loving father. What about those who hate him and spit in his face? He is a wrathful judge. But does that mean there's two gods? No. I will be whom I will be is what God said in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses asked, what is your name? Name, that's a word that sometimes brings up a wrong connotation to us. How many of you were born? Most of you, okay. When you were born, you were given a name. God wasn't born. So when you say the name of God, the name of God relates to his character. So how will he be to us was the question. And his answer is it depends on how you are to me. So if you are a loving, faithful child, there is no merciful father greater than God. And if you are his enemy, look out. So come back to Jeremiah 13, verse 11. But they would not hear, 
You could also translate as they did not hear, but would not hear is a better translation because it shows an attitude. It explains why they didn't hear. Was it because God didn't speak loud enough? No. It was because they refused to hear. Because what if they did hear, then they would have to want. Repent. They'd have to change their conduct. They don't want to. Turn up to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they all should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Why did they not believe the truth? They didn't want to because they don't want to give up the sin. So, Paul told Timothy that in these last days, people want their ears tickled. They want to be told, you can be saved, have eternal life, and walk in your sin. You can have it all. Where's that in the scripture? I haven't found it yet. So let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 12. Which begins with the word, therefore. Therefore. But it's not therefore. It's just and. That's all it is. Therefore has a specific meaning. It's a continuation of the discussion above. Well, yeah, we're going to conclude the discussion above by saying, when you choose... To walk away from God, there are consequences. And that's what starts in verse 12. It says, and you shall speak to them this word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Does your Bible have a thee before the God of Israel? It should. It looks to us like Lord God here is a phrase, and it's not. Lord is the tetragrammaton, and the Lord is a name. And the name is described as the God of Israel. Where the English makes it look like Lord is an adjective, and God of Israel is the subject, and it's not. It says, every bottle shall be filled with wine. But it actually should read, should be filled with wine. And they will say to you, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? What are they saying? We're God's people. We're God's people. God's going to bless us. The joy and the blessing is just going to overflow. And normally... Wine is a symbol of joy. But that's not the only thing it can symbolize. And here, it certainly does not symbolize joy. So God says, you should fill all the bottles with wine. They're going, well, of course we should. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. And God says, oh, no, it's not. 
Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. Now wait a minute. A glass of wine is one thing. To be filled with drunkenness, that's something entirely different. Go to Ezekiel chapter 23. Whenever God says filled with drunkenness, it's a bad thing. Go to Ezekiel chapter 23, verse 33. We'll start in 32 for context. It begins, thus says the Lord God, should read, thus says my Lord, the Lord. You shall drink of your sister's cup. So he's speaking to Judah. What's Judah's sister? That's Israel, the northern kingdom. What happened to the northern kingdom? They went into captivity to Syria. When did they come out? They haven't yet. You shall drink of your sister's cup. Was that a cup full of joy? No, it was a, drunk, a cup full of judgment. The deep and wide one. You shall be laughed to scorn and held in derision. It contains much. You shall be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, not joy, sorrow. The cup of horror and desolation. The cup of your sister Samaria. You shall drink and drain it. That's why he said it's a deep and wide one. It's filled not with wine for joy, but wine for drunkenness and disaster. You shall drink and drain it. You shall break its shards and tear at your own breasts. For I have spoken, says the Lord God. What's it mean, tear at your own breasts? It's with the sharp edges of the shards you're going to cut yourself. Who cuts themselves back in those days? The pagans, when they're calling out and praying to whom? They're pagan gods. So when God brings judgment against Jerusalem and Judah... Are they going to cry out to God for help? Or are they going to cry out to their pagan gods? Oh my goodness. They're going to call out to their pagan gods. Let's go back to Jeremiah. To verse 14. To verse 14. And I will dash them one against another. Even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord, I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but will destroy them. What does that have to do with drunkenness? You're not right-minded. Right are you well able to defend yourself? No. When you are drunk and you lose all control... You become easy to defeat and to destroy. Go to Jeremiah 21 verse 7. It's going to explain this a little more. Here's how that's going to happen. Jeremiah chapter 21 verse 7. And afterward says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah king of Judah, his servants and the people, 
and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their life. He shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. As a general rule in the Bible, when God says, I will strike them or smite them, he uses a foreign army to do it. Not always the case, as what happened when he came down and killed 185,000 of the Assyrians. He did that himself. But that's not the usual way. Usually God invites in an invading army. And that's the way he's going to carry out this promise to Israel in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 14. Isn't this the same thing God did with Belshazzar? They were just completely drunk out of their minds. They were drunk out of their minds. God wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, you farsen. And then how did he destroy them? The Medes and the Persians came in and just... Medes and the Persians came right under the gates of the city. Everybody was passed out drunk. It's kind of like I keep saying about the musicians of the 70s. They should not have shared their drugs with the pilots. Yeah. So in the days of Belshazzar, he shared the wine and the drunkenness even with the soldiers that were supposed to be defending the city. Arrogance. Believing arrogantly that those walls were impenetrable. And he was right. Nobody could have breached those walls. But everybody was drunk. He dammed up the river and they just walked under the wall. While the soldiers who were supposed to be defending it were drunk. So back to Jeremiah, chapter 13, verse 15. Hear and give ear. What's that mean? Listen and listen good. Listen and listen good. Do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. What's he mean, do not be proud? What were they proud of? They thought the walls of Jerusalem could not be breached. They thought the temple of God could not be destroyed. They thought there was no way that Nebuchadnezzar could come in and conquer them. Why? Who told them that? The false prophets. While Jeremiah is crying, repent, please, while there's time, the false prophet said, oh, don't listen to him. Everything will be fine. Yes, sir. The same spirit of false prophets. The same people as today say a loving God would never send anyone to hell. Which means what? That God's going to save everybody. That same mentality then that the false prophets were spewing in Jerusalem. And Doc, you're exactly right. What they mean is you can do whatever you want. You may lose a few rewards in heaven. You may have to do KP once in a while, but you'll be just fine. But if your good outweighs your bad, you're, you're in good shape. But if your good outweighs your bad, you're in good shape. But where's that in the Bible? The answer is it's nowhere. That's why they're false prophets, you see. Verse 15 and 16, Hear and give ear, do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God. It's not that they don't know who the Lord is. Why does he add your God? Because Baal and 
Because Baal and Ishtar are not your God. The gods that the people are praying to are not gods. They're not your gods. The Lord is your God. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness. And before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death. And makes it dense darkness. Does that sound like Matthew 25 in the parable of the ten virgins? Five were wise and had plenty of oil. Five were not and were stumbling in darkness. That's exactly what he means. Give glory to the Lord your God is to repent. Turn back to God. Humble yourselves and repent. Or judgment is coming. And what do you think it means when it says he turns it into the shadow of death? Some people would say, well, that's not literal. But it is literal. It makes a dense darkness. Go to Acts chapter 17. Spiritual darkness. Acts chapter 17. And it's more than just spiritual darkness. What did Nebuchadnezzar do to the king before he took him away? Blinded him. Such that he literally stumbled in darkness as he was going across the mountains. Acts chapter 17 verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. It's just mind-boggling that people can read that and say, but repentance isn't necessary. God's okay with your sin. But now, is that word suggests, asks, commands, whom? All men everywhere. That's kind of broad. To repent. Hmm. Does God tell us why here? What's that next word? Because. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Does that mean he will judge the whole world as righteous? No, it means he will be a righteous judge. What does he say about those who have sinned? He will want. In no wise acquit, right? If they do not repent... They are going to face God's judgment. Those echo Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes. At the very end where it says, Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. What's the next word? Because there's going to come a day when every work we do is going to be brought into judgment, whether good or bad. Isn't that what it says, good or bad? Yep. And that makes me think of Deuteronomy 30 where Moses, in the inspiration of God, says, I set before you life and death. Choose life. But we get to choose. But there are consequences to the choices. So it says in verse 31 of Acts 17, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Who is that? That's Yeshua, the Messiah. John chapter something or other. Five says all judgment is given to the son. 
says he has given assurance to this to all by raising him from the dead. What you just read in Acts. Well, I just read in Acts. It goes right along with Acts 26. Goes right along with Acts 26, which says, Paul lays out what you the order. You have to repent. Paul lays out the order. First is repent. Then turn to God. Then turn to God. Then do works befitting repentance. Is there an or in there anywhere? Repent. What does repent mean? Turn from your sin. Turn to whom? Turn to God. And once you turn to God, then do works befitting repentance. What does that word befitting actually mean? To evidence that you have repented, that you have turned. Yes, you can interject. All of our studies, for as long as I've been coming, continually reinforce the concept that the Bible is one book and has one message. One book with one message. And when you go back to Jeremiah a couple of verses before where you are now yeah. about deep darkness, Isaiah 60 verse 2. Isaiah 60 verse 2. Let's turn there before he reads it. It says the same thing. It says the same thing. And it appears to me that this occurs over and over and over and over. It's like a broken record, the old records we used to have. Yeah. It says, for behold, the darkness, the darkness. For behold, the darkness, not a darkness, the so, darkness. Go ahead with it. Shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. Let's go back to verse 1, which says, Kumi Uri, arise, shine, for your light has come. That light is the light of Messiah. What did it say in the book of Isaiah chapter 9? That in the darkness the light has shined in the Galilee of the Gentiles, right? Yeah. Darkness did not comprehend it. And the darkness did not comprehend it. So this repeats for believers, for people who are who will turn to God and repent over and over and over. It's, yeah. it's, it's like a promise that if you will turn to me, I will bless you. I, you know, my life yeah. will shine upon you. In a world that's full of darkness, right. you will have light. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. You're right. The Bible is like a broken record. It teaches the same thing over and over and over again. And yet, so many people today, it's like they never heard it. But go to John chapter 1 to continue that theme that the Bible is one book, one message. Turn to God. Love Him. Put your faith in Him. John chapter 1. We all know John 1, 1. You could quote it to me probably backwards standing on your head. But it says in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Meaning, didn't understand it. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. 
And verse 9 there. Yes. People deny that that's true. People deny. They can deny it all they want they to, say, but God about, said it. They say, what about people who never heard? What about, what about? Verse 9 says, this true light gives light to every man coming into the world. Yep. And they, according to Romans, they all turn from that light and deny him. It's a choice. It's a choice. Every human being that's ever been born is born with that light. Yep. And then they must turn from that light to not accept it. Absolutely true. So whom does God turn away? God turns no one away. We turn away from God. If you and God are separated, it's you who moved. Uh, in Isaiah 9, what verse was that? 1 and 2. 1 and 2. 9. Where it talks about the Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, yep. Okay. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 9. Yeah, I mentioned Isaiah 9, but we didn't turn oh, to it. Oh, well, I did. <laughs> I just mentioned it. But you're right, I should always go to it. Isaiah 9, 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea. That's a road, the Via Maris. They shouldn't have translated that. Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Where was Messiah's ministry centered? It was in Galilee. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And this is where you go down to verse 6. It talks about the birth of Messiah. Back to Jeremiah. We're up to verse 17. Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 17. But if you will not hear it, my soul, the word my refers to Jeremiah. My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. So, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because of things like this. Verses 15 and 16, he's encouraging the people to repent, to turn from their sin, and embrace God in faith and love. And verse 17 says, but if you don't, I will weep bitterly for you because you're going to be gone. The Lord's flock has been taken captive. Is that um, literal or... Just a figure of speech. It's talking about the Babylonian captivity. It's absolutely literal. Go to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. I know you guys are right. There's a lot of preachers today that say God wouldn't send somebody to the lake of fire. Yes, he most certainly will. But that's because he loves you enough to honor your decision. You decided to go? Okay. Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 1. 
When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. That phrase, out of Egypt, I called my son, is a reference to Messiah and the fact that Joseph and Mary had to take him to Egypt until the death of Herod. But it's also a picture of the entire nation. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. This is not Messiah who did this. This is Israel. The beloved of God worshiping the pagan idols. I taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim's the northern kingdom. Taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck, that is to set them free. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king. That's talking about the Assyrian captivity of 722 BCE. And verse 5 tells us why. Because they what? Refused to repent. So what if they had repented? Would they have gone into the Assyrian captivity? No. And the sword shall slash in his districts, devour his districts, his cities, and consume them because of their own counsels. There's the false prophets. Because the false prophets said, no, you don't need to repent. Verse 7 says, my people are bent on backsliding from me. What does bent on mean? They're headlong determined. They refuse to repent. They're bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. You would say those last two phrases there, though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. That's the same as Mark chapter 7, right? The people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How many preachers today do you hear say, if you call upon the Lord, then you're saved. You're delivered. You're all set to go to the kingdom. What does this say? Luke chapter 6, verse 46. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I say? That's what the people were doing in the northern kingdom. They said, the Lord is our God. Now let's go worship and give a sacrifice and offering to Baal and Ishtar. How does God take that? Poorly. Poorly. <laughs> Jeremiah 13, 18. Say to the king and to the queen mother. Talking about King Jehoiachin and his mother. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves what? Before God, that's what it means. Sit down. Why sit down? Stop being, exalting your Stop being exalting yourself. Is there more to it? Did the students sit to learn? Is he telling the king and his mother to sit down and learn? For your rule shall collapse the crown of your glory. Because they won't humble themselves. They won't sit down. They won't learn. They won't study. What does Hosea 4 say? My people perish for 
Lack of knowledge. What kind of knowledge? Physics? Knowledge of the Word of God. For your rule shall collapse. Go to 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. Starting in verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 24, starting in verse 8. There's a lot of kings whose names sound like Jehoiachin, so you have to be careful. There's a king, there's a king, there's all kinds of names. This one is Jehoiachin. Verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Not very long, huh? How many of you would have been ready at 18 years old? To be king over God's nation. All of us would have thought we were, but that's different from being ready. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city as his servants were besieging it. Then Jehoiachin, king of Judah, his mother, that's the mother we were talking about in Jeremiah, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon king of Israel had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. Also he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried Jehoiachin captive to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officers, and the mighty of the land he carried into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. All the valiant men, 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, 1,000, all who were strong and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. Let's go back to Jeremiah. It's not like God didn't warn Jehoiachin and his mother and give them an opportunity to repent. Did they take advantage of that opportunity? They did not. So in Jeremiah 13, verse 19, it says, The cities of the south shall be shut up and no one shall open them. Which means in the southern kingdom of Judah, every city fell except for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the only one left. It says, Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive, which means there's not one who is going to be left in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar gets done. Verse 20, lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. What's he mean by the north? He means Babylon. What's that 
What country is what? Babylon today? Iraq. Iraq. Yeah. Yeah. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where is the flock that was given to you? Your beautiful sheep. That means when Babylon comes, what happens to all those people in Jerusalem? Killed or carried away captive. Verse 21 says, And if you say in your heart, Why have these things come upon me? I skip verse 21. What will you say when he punishes you? What does he mean by punishes you? That's the captivity. That's Babylon. Where did he tell them that a foreign power would take them captive if they turned away from him? Deuteronomy 28. So it's not like they didn't have fair warning. God never brings judgment without warning and an opportunity to repent. But what, pun what will you say when he punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Will not pang seize you like a woman in labor? Make a note of those two phrases. Will not pangs seize you like a woman in labor? We will see that phrase used over and over throughout the scripture to refer to the wrath that gets poured out in the day of the Lord in the tribulation period. This was just a small picture what happened to Jerusalem under Babylon. Let's go first to Psalm 48 as we trace out this idea of birth pains. Psalm 48. Psalm 48, verse 6 in particular. We're going to start in verse 1 and work up to verse 6. It's a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah. It says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. What is the city of our God? That's Jerusalem. In his holy mountain, that's the temple mount. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. It was said by those of old that if you had never seen the city of Jerusalem, you had never seen beauty in your whole life. When the temple stood and it was covered with gold and the sun shone upon it, it looked like the entire thing was just the finest gold. It was so pretty. It says, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is in her palaces. He is known as her refuge. For behold, the kings assembled. They passed by together. They saw it and they marveled. They were troubled. They hastened away. Fear took hold of them there. And pain as of a woman in birth pangs. What caused the fear? Here comes the invading armies. It was the most beautiful of cities inhabited by God himself. And the people turned away from him to pagan idolatry. And what did God do? He departed from the temple as Babylon approached. Mm. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 8.
As we keep studying Jeremiah, we're going to find that God told the people that if they would simply keep the Sabbath, he would not allow the city to be destroyed. You know what they said? Yeah, that's asking too much. Asking too much. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 8. And we'll start at verse 6 for context, but verse 8 is the key. Verse 6 begins, wail. What does wail mean? Cry, but it's more than cry. What kind of a cry? A sorrowful, painful cry. Yeah, wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. What time period do you think we're talking about? Day of the Lord. But notice at the top of the Bible, the heading is prophecy against Babylon. The destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon was a picture of what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. What are all nations going to do? They're going to come from the north against Jerusalem. So it says, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. Does that mean they're eating too many jalapenos? What's that mean? No, it means they're going to be terrified. And they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They'll be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Have you ever been that terrified? Well, if you've been in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar's army is approaching, after God said they're going to destroy every man, woman, and child, I think you'd know fear, wouldn't you? No? Okay. Next one. Isaiah chapter 21, verse 3. Isaiah 21, verse 3. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. Do you get the idea whenever God uses the phrase like a woman in childbirth, it's not joyous things that are coming? It's talking about outright terror. Isaiah 26, verse 7. And these are here to teach us about that which is to come. Isaiah 26, verse 7. The way of the just is uprightness. O most upright, you weigh the path of the just. What's that mean? He watches our every step. Those that are just, those that are righteous, how do they walk? They walk righteously. What does that mean? They walk according to God's ways. Hmm. Let's go on to Jeremiah chapter 22. Wait a minute. Before we go, let's look at Isaiah 26, 17. Almost missed that one. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pangs when she draws near the time of delivery... So have we been in your sight, O Lord. 
We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. And look what comes next. Comes next, the rapture and the resurrection. So what does this say the world is going to be like right before the rapture and the resurrection? Kind of like how it is now. Is it going to be a time of peace and love and harmony and friendship? No. No. Nor is the world we live in right now. I don't know how old each of you are, but in my lifetime, I'm not sure I've seen any peace. Have you? There's war going on somewhere somewhere in the world all the time. Now to Jeremiah 22. Lord, when are you going to bring the judgment? Does that make you think of Psalm 119? 126. Verse 126. Second Peter three. Like the Lord is long suffering not because he's slack. Lord is long suffering not because he's slack, but because he wants everybody to repent. He wants everyone at least to have an opportunity to repent, doesn't and he? Then the next word, but. but and that's kinda of like what Isaiah's saying too. You know, God, I know when you're gonna bring this, you know, at the time of the rapture, that's when it's gonna happen, but you know, but you don't want to be here on this world after the rapture happens, right? You don't want to be left behind. If you watch the left behind movies, they don't do it justice. They make it look like, well, things aren't going to change all that much. The first four seals, how much of the earth dies? I think it's only a third in that first four seals. And then again, there's another Reaping. Yeah, and then it gets bad. Yeah. After a third of the earth is dead, then it gets bad. Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22, verse 23. Oh, inhabitant of Lebanon. Not there yet? Oh, yeah, I'm there. Jeremiah 22, 23. Oh, inhabitant of Lebanon, making your nest in the cedars. How gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor. What is God likening to childbirth? God's wrath and judgment being poured out. Jeremiah 48. Yeah, we're going to carry this theme into the New Testament. It goes a long way through the scriptures. Jeremiah 48. God bless you. Verse 41. We'll start in 40 because it says, For thus says the Lord. Now we know who the message is from. Behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread its wings over Moab. Where's Moab today? Jordan. Jeremiah 48, we started in verse 40 to give us a running start in 41. Kiriot is taken and the strongholds are surprised. The mighty men's hearts in Moab on that day, what day? The Lord shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. And Moab shall be destroyed as a people. When do Moab and 
his compatriots get destroyed, that's in the Psalm 83 war, right? They're going to be terrified like a woman in labor when God allows the mighty Israeli defense forces under his guidance and protection to smack them down. Jeremiah 49, verse 22. We are getting a sneak peek of what the IDF can do. Even Iran step, stood back and said, Sorry, Hamas, you're on your own. We're not really going to intervene. Uh-huh. Once they saw what Israel was capable of, they said, They'll just stay home. Thank you very much. Jeremiah 49:22 says, Behold, he shall come up and fly like the eagle and spread his wings over Bozrah. Where's Bozrah? That's in Edom in southern Jordan. Yep. The heart of the mighty men of Edom in that day should be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. In other words, they're going to be terrified when God defends Israel like an eagle spreading his wings over his people. And again in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 43. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him, pangs of a woman in childbirth. Like you said, where is Babylon today? That's in Iraq. Does Iraq still exist? It does, but it's getting real close to not existing anymore. Yeah, they they pulled an all-out attack on a U.S. base here this week. Not just lobbing a few missiles and rockets in. They regret that already. Micah chapter 4. You know you're really stretching when you use Facebook memes when you're teaching, right? One of the cutest Facebook memes I saw in the last couple weeks is a monkey walks up behind a lion with a stick, smacks him, and it starts crying for a (laughs) ceasefire. (laughs) Don't smack the lion. Okay. Micah 4 verse 9. We know Micah 4 verses 1 and 2 is about what? The millennial kingdom. So let's go to verse 9. Over and over in Micah 4 we see in that day, in that day, in that day. Verse 9 says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered, there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. How can we go within one chapter from the promise of the Messianic kingdom to captivity in Babylon? It takes that, ki- that captivity to make people repent and come to the knowledge of salvation. salvation. So the Babylonian captivity is an Old Testament picture of what's going to happen in the day of the Lord. So he starts with the carrot, but then he gets, pulls out the stick. 
He starts with the carrot and then goes with the stick. But he always starts with the carrot. Yes, Bill? Could it be uh, when, 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 the, uh, when they first went into Egypt and Joseph was, you know, lifted up in, in the eyes of Pharaoh. Yeah. And the children over over time period when that Pharaoh died and the other Pharaoh saw how big they'd gotten and he enslaved them out of fear of them. Uh-huh. Could, and then they stayed there 430 years and then they were nope. delivered. Or nope, they were not in Egypt 430 years. Okay. It was 430 years from the promise right. to okay. Abraham. They were only in Egypt 210 years. Okay, okay, yeah, okay, thank you. Uh, so, but then until the time they came out, so that period in Egypt, so the slavery period, uh -huh. was showing, was, was necessary in order to show God's strength and power. Right. In bringing them out. Right. Egypt was the seat not, of idolatry. Right. And they had to learn that those idols are not God. Not, not worth a... Nothing. Right. <laughs> not worth not worth burnt sand. Right. And uh, so now that uh, precedent, I don't know if that's right right term, but that established goodness and strength of God was necessary to show them in their later travels, journeys, and eventually receiving the promise that it's no good to return to idolatry. Right. That's a lesson they should have learned, but they had to go through the same lesson a few times. Well, I, I'm no better. Uh, uh, okay, that's it. Thank okay. you. Okay. All right. Sorry. That's okay. I didn't mean to divert. So let's go on from Micah to Romans chapter 8. Exodus 12, 12. Let's go there. Okay. I mean, it talks about how God executed judgment on the gods of Egypt to show right. that he was God. Right. That's something that I try and emphasize at every Passover Seder. God was not just hurting Egyptians because he likes to hurt people. That's not what it was. Look at verse 12 of Exodus 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. That's something that people forget. The first plague was what? They struck the Nile. One of the main gods of Egypt was the Nile god. And what was God saying? That that piece of stone up there is not God. Those fleas are not God. The frogs are not God. The flies are not God. That's right. And neither was Pharaoh. So what God was trying to teach to Israel and the nations, because Egypt had conquered all nations, was that there is only one God, and that's the Lord our God. Good point. Now to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Everybody there? Four. We know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. What does Paul mean by that? The whole earth itself wants to go back to the way it was? In the beginning, back to the Garden of Eden status. But that could not happen until Messiah came. And it will not be until Messiah's second coming that we're going to see the earth begin to look again like the Garden of Eden. Do you think in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had to watch and not step on serpents lest they get bit? Or they had to watch for lions lest they get eaten? No. So all of creation wants sin to be atoned for and for righteousness to be restored and the earth to be put back into its state of glory. That, you know, that show that the, the more closer together these judgments and these birth pains come, that's how much closer we are to things being reestablished. Yeah. Yeah, and where else in the New Testament am I going to find about birth pains? First Thessalonians chapter five. And Wayne, you know, you, you were talking about earlier about our age and the wars that we've seen. Yeah. And I think us older people have experienced. I mean, the older we get, the more we see, we're able to see the past. And I think that this. Romans 8.22 we get to a point where it's like oh, you know, Maranatha even so come yep. Lord Jesus we we're weary of this, you know yep. we're waiting for our salvation we are yes ma'am good Rachel I wanted to ask uh, since we're in Romans 8 uh, verses 38 and 39 a lot of people like to quote that and say that uh that God, that, that there's nothing that keeps us from the love of God. In other words, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing that can keep us from God's love. And I, to my knowledge, I believe that's external. But we can walk away from God by not being obedient. I just wanted to clarify that. Right. Great. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, what are those? Those are the feasts and festivals, the appointed times of the Lord. When were they established? On the fourth day of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. Brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. So the labor pains in the Old Testament talked about the wrath of God being poured out and invading armies coming to carry out God's judgment. What's it going to mean in the day of the Lord? The same, the same thing. Matthew 24. Let's turn back there. Matthew 24. Yes, some. 
you know, our world is going bad because we got too much gas, too much this, too much that. The ESO Yep, our world being in the mess it is, is that leading up to the birth pains? It's leading up to, but if you think this is bad, just wait till the rapture happens and you see what happens to those left behind. We don't want to be here for that. I promise you, we don't want to be here. Climate change is the cover story because otherwise they have to admit it's God's judgment. And then they have to admit there's a God, so they'd rather have blame it on the cows and their, their poor habits. Yeah, whatever. Matthew chapter 24, in verse 8, we see the birth pains, whether we realize it or not. It says, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Oh, that doesn't that sound mild and minor? That word in Greek is odin, O-D-I-N. It means specifically birth pangs. So the birth pangs begin... What comes in verses 4 through 7? The first four seals. The release of the false Messiah, followed by war, followed by famine, followed by pestilence. And Lord says, this is the beginning. So in those four seals, billions of people will die. So pretty much when we see the phrase birth things or something similar, we can assume that that is... God's wrath, God's yep. judgment. Yep. And now she's going to say, well, what about regular women's birth pains? <laughs> well, that is sort of God's judgment. <laughs> Go to Genesis chapter 3. That's what he said in Genesis chapter 3. It's not all bad because isn't there a scripture that says... That says when it's over, they get a nice loving baby and they forget <laughs> the pain. Yeah. yeah. There's a scripture that says after... I mean, we're talking about physical natural birth things there because the woman sees the reward at the end of it and it's like a blessing. Yep. The, but the other birth things are not a blessing. Actually, <laughs> they are because they result in the messianic kingdom. Yeah, and they can result in repentance too. Sometimes. And that's their purpose is to bring people to repentance. But if you go to Genesis chapter 3 verse 16, ladies, please don't send me emails about this. I didn't write it. <laughs> says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. So, yeah, that was God's judgment, too. You know, those birth pains, they're like, uh, I kind of, I mean, I'm just looking at it from the outside. You know, it seems like when the birth pains start to happen, that's like you're warning, get, get to the doctor, you're about to have a baby. Yeah. But, you know, when we're talking about the birth pains of Messiah, when those birth pains start happening, that's your signal. Exactly. You need to repent because it's about to get worse. Right. The Lord is coming. So it's, it's kind of God firing the warning shot saying, you better repent. Yeah. Okay, back to Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 22. And if you say in your heart, yeah, we're back to that. Why have these things come upon me? So the question is, Lord, what do we do? Yeah, okay, we murdered babies and we raped and killed our neighbors and, and we worship pagan idols in your house, but, but what do we do wrong? He says, for the greatness of your iniquity. What's another word for iniquity? 
lawlessness. How does the Lord feel about lawlessness? Just read Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. So God says the captivity that's coming, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, all that's coming because of your lawlessness, because you refuse to keep God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. Yeah. It doesn't mean greatness as in how wonderful. It's like lots. Yeah, greatness as in multitude, that's a good word a good way to put it. Multitude. Because that's what it means. That the lawlessness is so bad that God cannot withhold judgment anymore. Is there anything like that in Matthew twenty four? Let's go to Matthew chapter twenty four. I heard a preacher just today preaching on Matthew 24 and where it says in verse 12 and because lawlessness will abound the love of many will grow cold and he said just look at all those speeders out there and people running red lights and they're even speeding through school zones they won't obey the laws is that the kind of laws that God is talking no. about here no did you have some dad That word means multitude or abundance. We're back in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 22. Multitude or abundance. Yep. And that's what we knew it meant. It, we knew it didn't mean they were really good at their iniquity. Yeah. But, you know, it's yeah. like God is saying, you didn't just have a, an uh-oh or an oopsie. You know? Yeah, it's not just an oopsie once we fell down. No, you just keep on, keep on, keep on. Keep on. It's a refusal to repent. Because my choice is to walk in sin and let God lump it. Seared conscience. Yep, seared conscience. So as we go back to Jeremiah 13 and finish verse 22, it says, For the greatness, multitude, abundance of your lawlessness, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare. I did. Let's go back to Matthew 24 again. Because obviously I didn't do it very well. I, I said verse 12. Or in my mind I did. Okay. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That's not important. <laughs> What is important is God says, because people will not follow the commandments of God, how do they treat each other? Do they treat each other in love and kindness? Or are they going to turn on each other? Are they going to um, think back to Nazi Germany and how people turned each other into the Gestapo? Messiah says, that's what it's going to be. They're going to hate you. They're going to, in verse 10, and many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and, de and deceive many. Do those false prophets teach God's commandments? Do they teach repentance? No, it says, because lawlessness will abound. That is, it's going to be everywhere. The love of many will grow cold. 
But he endures to the end will be saved. What end is that? What's that word? That's telos. Okay. So because the law has been abolished by the church, lawlessness is bound. Correct. <laughs> That's exactly right. When the church teaches that the law does not apply anymore, that's going to cause the law, the love of many to grow cold. I mean, it's just a natural domino effect. If, you know, if the people that are calling themselves God's people are saying God's laws don't apply, don't apply then what's going to naturally flow from that? Yep, and what do we call that doctrine? Nicolaitanism. Nicolaitanism. Yeah. Jeremiah 13. Verse 22, your skirts have been uncovered, your heels made bare means you're going to be taken into captivity. Back in those days when they took people captive, they took all the clothes and they shaved all the hair. And the people were chained or tied together and walked to the place of captivity to show their shame to the world. No, that's not why they did it. Yes, Matthew. During the Holocaust? Yeah. 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 Schindler's List. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 4. Ooh, that's a long way back there. Genesis chapter 4 is about Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4 establishes a very important principle of sin. And what sin is. And the fact that, as someone asked me this week, if the law wasn't given till Exodus 20, why was there sin before that? Which means the law has been from the beginning. Yep. In Genesis chapter 4, we have a bad translation. In verse 13... It says, and Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. That word is not punishment. It's my iniquity, my lawlessness, which means Cain acknowledges to the Lord, I broke your commandments. I was not obedient. And he was feeling so guilty about it. It's the guilt that was greater than he can bear. Genesis 15. And Daniel made the very point that I brought us back here to say is that lawlessness existed long before Exodus 20 and the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai because the Torah has existed from the beginning. And how do we know it existed back in these early days of Genesis and applied to all peoples? Look at Genesis chapter 15. God tells Abraham his descendants are going to go into the Egyptian captivity and are going to stay there till when? Yeah, look at verse 16. But in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity, which means lawlessness. The Hebrew word is avon. Of the Amorites is not yet complete. So the Amorites 
were breaking God's commandments more and more as day by day went by. And God said, well, they're not as bad as they're going to get. So they get to finish their time and show me just how sinful they can be. What kind of sins were the Amorites committing? The same as in Jeremiah. Idolatry, adultery, sexual immorality, bloodshed, murder, etc. So when the children of Israel start acting like the Amorites when they were kicked out of the land, what happens to them? They're going to get kicked out of the land too. Right. Exodus chapter 20 verse 5. Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, or in Hebrew, the Ten Words. And weren't there about 400 years of kings, give There were about 400 years of, the of, of judges before the kings. And then, with the kings, and then the kings went from 1000 BC to, yeah, about 400 years. So, I mean, that's interesting because the time that God gave to Abraham, Same length of time. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting there that God gave them that 400 plus year grace period yeah. to repent. And then after that, he said, You're right. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 You shall not bow down to them, the carved images, the idols, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity. That's the avon, that's lawlessness. Of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing mercy to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. So verses 5 and 6 in contrast tell us what God means by lawlessness. Those who do not love him and do not keep his commandments, right? That hasn't changed. It's been the definition from the beginning. Exodus 34, 7. Oops, I have a question out there and go to meeting land. Let's see what it says. We just saw a mild example of turning on one another with the COVID mess. Yeah. Uh. Exodus 34, verse 7. I want to put it in context. Start in verse 4. So he, he being Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. How much do you think those two tablets of stone weighed? The first set, God cut out at the top of the mountain and Moses had to carry them down. This time he has to carry them all the way up. How many cut small ones? Moses was between 80 and 120 years old at this point. Yeah, Moses is more than 80 years old at this point. Verse 5, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, 
keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. That's what I want us to look at here. If he's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, what does it mean by no means clearing the guilty? If you continue unrepentant, should you expect God's forgiveness? No. no. So God will forgive once you repent of any of the iniquity, transgression, and sin. But if you do not repent, do not expect to be forgiven. Is that consistent with the New Testament? When they said to Peter in Acts chapter 2, what should we do? What was the first thing he said? Repent. We looked at the New Testament a few minutes ago, commanding all men everywhere to do what? To repent. In Exodus 3, when he told Moses his name, he said, I will be whom I will be. And this is it right here. That's exactly what it is. Okay, back to Jeremiah. Chapter 13, verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? No. Michael Jackson tried that. The answer is no. His parents tried that. <laughs> then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. What he means is, if you remain unrepentant, then you're not going to just magically one day turn up righteous. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing, says Job 14.4, and the answer is no one. Correct. When God says a pig is unclean, will he ever change his mind and say, I've decided to make it a clean animal? The answer is no. He said, I'm the Lord, I do not change. And does he tell us his word does not change? He tells us his word does not change. Does he say, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven? It's settled in heaven. So to say he then came and made the pigs clean is to misunderstand Acts 10. When Peter explains it, did Peter say, God told me I should not call any pig common or unclean, or I should not call any man common or unclean? I don't know why people have such a hard time understanding that. You know, can you see with this Jeremiah 13, 20, can you see the mentality of people today, especially... Can I see the mentality of people today? With the trans movement. With the trans movement, all of they... Yep, God made a mistake. Yeah, God said, well, if, you know, if the leopard can't change its spots. Leopard can't change its spot, we can't change our gender. Yeah, it's that same, I mean, like I said, it's that same spirit that has been from then to now. Yep. Our government keeps saying about COVID-19 in the shots, trust the science. <laughs> but when it comes to biology, they say, ignore the science. But then they cover the science up. Yeah. The science said it's not safe. Yeah. 
Yeah, and more and more that's coming out now, huh? Mr. Right. Wayne? Yes, ma'am. Something that I'm seeing a lot in conversation really battling, I guess, heart and I'm sorry, Susie, you're breaking up so bad I can't hear. That's okay. Can you hear me? Now I can. Okay, so sorry. My service is not the best sometimes. No, I, something that's been brought up to me is the scriptures that seem to possibly imply that you can just pray over it. You can just pray over it and now it's clean. I know, the, I know it can't be clean once it's unclean, but explaining those scriptures i've been having to do some research and thinking i keep telling them but all things are good but all things are not food yeah so let's go back to first timothy chapter four yeah that's the part they're not reading go to first i'm gonna go back on mute <laughs> okay first timothy chapter four now the spirit what spirit Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, so this is from God, expressly says that in the latter times that some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And people who say 1 Timothy 4 says we can eat pigs, says that God's word out of his own mouth are deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. That is called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's the one thing Messiah said will never be forgiven. So this is something to avoid at all costs. So the first thing we know is this is not talking about something that comes from God. Because they expressly say it comes from demons. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. That is they claim to be following God when they're actually speaking forth lies. But their conscience are seared because they've told the lies so many times they can't distinguish it from the truth anymore. Number three, forbidding to marry. This is the second sign that tells you that he, they're not talking about God's commandments. Does God forbid us to marry or does God encourage us to marry and stay married? And commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. There's number three. With those who live by God's word consider unclean animals as food, the answer is no. If you'd ask anybody in the scriptures back in the first century whether a pig is food, they'd have said absolutely not. By those who believe and know the truth, what truth are we talking about? Psalm 119 verse 142, we're talking about the Torah. So, Verse 4 says, for every creature of God is good, and that's true. Pigs are good. Lobsters are good animals. They're all good. They're just not all food. It says, and nothing is to be received, refused, if it is received with thanksgiving. What's the next word? For, which means because. It is sanctified, which means set apart as food. By the word of God, that is Leviticus 11, says you can eat it, that it's clean. And prayer, that is you thank God for the food that he provided. So to break it all down, if God said you can eat it, and you thank God for it, 
then don't let the ascetic Gnostics tell you you cannot have it. Ascetic Gnosticism says in order to become God one day, you must deny yourself all earthly pleasure. So did God say we could have a T-bone steak? Yes. They say no, you can't because you would enjoy it. Therefore, you must refuse it so that you can earn your way to Godhood. That's what 1 Timothy 4 is all about. Every Wayne, preacher I've heard... Here? What's that? I was going to say, could we look at Job 14.4? Yeah, Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? And the answer is no one, but let's turn back there. Job 14.4. Thank you, Sue. I always say, make me show it to you. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Answer, no one. So the point of Acts chapter 10 is that the pig is unclean. But who said the Gentiles are unclean? That was the rabbis. Who gets to decide what's clean or unclean? God does. Anything else to add to that, Sue? No, thank you. Okay. Even that concept of common, that did not occur in the Old Testament. But I think what Yeshua was saying is, look, there are two categories, clean and unclean. What are right. you talking about common? Yeah. The common were what the rabbis called unclean, but they don't get to make that decision. And, and that was a man-made rule, and I think that's where the confusion comes in. that people said, thus he made all things clean. Well, you know, the ch the is clean. No, no, no. What their Bible says is, thus he made all foods clean. Yeah, right. Would he have called a pig food? No. no. Of not. But you're right. That's where they get confused. We have another minute and a half. So back in Jeremiah chapter 13, let's look at verse 24. Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because of what? Because they will not repent. Because they don't want to. Therefore I will scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness. That's a reference to separating the wheat from the chaff. You would go out to the threshing floor and put the stalks of wheat down. You would take an ox and run it round and round pulling a heavy piece of wood that would separate the, the kernels of wheat from the stalks. And then they would take winnowing forks and toss it way up in the air. And the wheat itself was heavy and would fall back to the threshing floor. And the chaff would blow away in the wind onto somebody else's farm. There you go. <laughs> but, that, what's that? Something interesting too about that big piece of wood that's drug across the, the wheat. Yeah. It's called a tribulum. Called a tribulum. Kind of like what the tribulation. Kind of like tribulation. Yeah. That's exactly what the tribulation period is designed to do. It's to separate the wheat from the tear, the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. The wheat stays the chaff. It's just burned up in an instant. Yep. And this chaff that's blowing away in the wind, he's using that to picture the children of Israel that are be taken into captivity. Because the chaff, you throw it up and the wind blows it away because it has no value. That's what God said about the children of Israel and they likened it to that dirty, ruined loincloth is that it no longer has any value. 
the purpose of the children of Israel is to be a teaching to the world that we need to worship the true and living God and that there is great blessing and joy that comes from that and they're teaching the world that pagan idolatry is cool and then they're of no value. Psalm chapter 1 says the ungodly are like chaff and that's exactly what he's talking about being taken away into captivity or in the end of days being cast into the lake of fire just as you would burn the chaff back in the days of old. Okay, we're out of time. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 25.